Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Corner, Rosalie Kicks. Me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. While it may be rainy and miserable here in Philadelphia, but to be honest, I couldn't be happier. In fact, I'm downright ecstatic. I am so excited to share that the slasher short I'm making with my film pals, Katie McBrown and Ian Kimball, has received the green light. That's right, goblins and ghouls, we ended up raising $3,615 over at Seed and Spark for our Pizza Man production. Thank you to each and every one of you that funded our movie and believes in us. It was getting down to the wire, but our film pal community pulled through in a huge way. We can't wait to make this movie. Production begins November 8th and will wrap up on the 10th. In the meantime, we are busy gathering the last of the props and fine-tuning plans for production. This past week, the producer of the film, Ian, and I met at Chili's to finalize the shot list. Believe me, this short is going to be killer. Earlier today, we met with the cast members that will be playing the roles of Helen, Teddy, and Winnie, the delivery driver, to conduct a blocking session and walk through rehearsal. I seriously can't wait to yell action. It's going to be so great. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. And in other news, I didn't really intend this to be a way to prepare for the film, but I just watched and listened to the commentary on the film Halloween from the director John Carpenter and star of the flick Jamie Lee Curtis. And wow, I just didn't realize that this was going to be one of those moments where I was overcome with the feeling of right place, right time. Like I said, I had no intention of listening to this listening to this commentary to prepare for the making of my film, but my partner in crime, Benjamin, had put the disc in and hit play, and wow, this ended up being the perfect movie to listen to as I'm in the midst of making my own slasher. Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. For those that aren't familiar with the film Halloween, it tells the story of Michael Myers, 
who escapes a mental facility and returns to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, on Halloween. After he's been away for 15 years for the murder of his sister, he has now returned to kill again. This movie was made in the 70s with a budget of $325,000, and it has now gone on to gross over $47 million and has become one of the most successful independent films ever made. Sometimes things are just meant to happen, and like I said, it's as if you were in the right place at the right time, and I believe I was meant to watch this movie and listen to this commentary. I loved hearing John Carpenter's insight on how he effectively made his film with such a small budget, and some of the tricks of the trade to ensure he got the coverage that he needed. As I prepare to make Pizza Man with a minimal budget, listening to his commentary only gave me confidence, and it was also a reminder that if you put your mind to it, you truly can accomplish anything. So I'll continue to give updates on Pizza Man along the way, so don't fret. But remember, you can always visit moviejohn.com slash pizza man. Um, we will be continuing to update there as well. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So the 28th annual Philadelphia Film Festival wrapped up this week, and I was fortunate to see some great films. Here are my top favorite, or my top three favorites that I wanted to share with you. The first one being Portrait of a Lady on Fire. This was a beautiful film and it will absolutely wreck you. It tells the story of two women, Marianne and Heloise. Marianne is commissioned to paint Heloise. Now, one thing is Marianne is to do this without Heloise being aware of it. So she has to sneak glances of her and paint from memory. Once the portrait is completed, Heloise is to be married off. Well, the two women end up falling for one another. This is just a wonderfully made film and I highly recommend it. The cinematography and the story are beautiful. Watch for this one to be released and don't forget to pack your tissues. My second favorite movie I watched was Parasite. I really don't want to share anything with you about this one though as I feel you really need to go into it completely cold. This is how I went into it, and I was so thankful that I knew nothing about it other than that it was written and directed by Bong Joon-ho, who brought us movies such as Okja and Snowpiercer. Definitely add this one to your watch list. Now, my last pick is Deerskin, and this was the latest film from the director that brought the world Rubber, a movie about a murderous tire. Deerskin is a lean 77 minutes that is hilarious, entertaining, and has killer style. 
Georges, played by Jean Dujardin, and probably mispronounced that, but he is the guy from the film The Artist, and I absolutely love that movie. It came out a few years ago and was like, it was basically a silent film. Um, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, but he, Georges, purchases um, a deerskin jacket from some random peddler, and apparently this was like a lifelong dream of his to own a deerskin jacket. And it's probably everything that you're picturing. It is completely tacky and honestly gross. Um, but he becomes obsessed with this jacket, and. As the film goes on, he collects more and more deerskin accessories, which leads him to murder. And he ends up making a movie about it, which is also just crazy. Um, and again, only 77 minutes. So a lot happens in this short runtime. So this is absolutely bonkers. However, for me, probably the most shocking part was seeing Adele Hanel pop up in the flick after just literally seeing her in A Portrait of a Lady on Fire as Heloise. It's not a double feature I would recommend as they couldn't be any more different, but they're both flicks that are totally worth your time. And yeah, Deerskin is ridiculously awesome. So watch for that one. Also, I feel it would probably be a disservice if I didn't mention another film that I saw at the fest. I know I said I was only going to share three, but I do have to tell you about Extraordinary. It was close to being in my top three, and it was a really fun and entertaining flick. Um, I watched this on the same day as Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Deerskin, and I seriously cannot remember the last time that I watched three movies in a row that I just loved. Um, but Extraordinary uh, tells the story of Rose. She is a driving school instructor that just so happens to have a gift of connecting with those that have found themselves on the other side. So it's a ghost story of sorts with many hilarious and ridiculous moments. And I would say that it's rather absurd, but a pure joy. So definitely watch for that one too. If you're interested in seeing what else I watched at the festival or what I am always watching for that matter, make sure to give me a follow over at Letterboxd. You can find me at Rosalie Kicks. Satan is a name she goes by. Lastly, if you subscribe to the radical print movie zine that I make with my film pals, we recently shipped out our fall 2019 issue featuring Bad Moms of Cinema. It has a beautifully done cover by our art director, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmucci, who is also responsible for our logo here at Cinematic Crypt. Thanks, Hugo. Um, but the cover features the illustrious Norma Bates and her son, Norman. It is available for purchase on our website, moviejohn.com shop, and includes an exclusive Bad Moms trading card, which were especially designed by me. There are four to collect, Ma Jarrett from White Heat, Joan Crawford from Mommy Dearest, 
Lucy Harbin from Straight Jacket, and of course, everyone's favorite mom, Norma Bates from Psycho. Don't miss your chance to score this cinematic awesomeness, for once they are gone, they are gone forever. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. For the month of October, I have been sharing with you some spooky, silent films. In the previous two episodes, I watched The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and the 1927 film The Cat and the Canary. For my last episode in this series, I will be sharing the awesomeness that is the 1921 flick The Phantom Carriage. I watched this film when it was raining outside and I could not think of a more perfect way to set the mood. Based on a novel by Selma Lagerlöf, the Swedish film was written and directed and stars Victor Sostrom, whom will be the corpse that I will be autopsying today. The Phantom Carriage is a silent picture set on New Year's Eve and tells the story of a driver of a ghostly carriage that encounters a drunken man, David Holm, and forces him to reflect on his wasted life. Victor plays David. Something I did not realize until a quick search via Google was that the director, Victor, was in a movie as an actor that I am extremely fond of, a Ingmar Bergman film, Wild Strawberries. What is interesting about this is that in Wild Strawberries, it tells the story of an aging professor who is played by Victor and is forced to look back on his life and realize that he has lived a cold and empty existence. This is very puzzling, very mystifying, since The Phantom Carriage is kind of a similar story. The film opens with a woman named Edith, that is dying on New Year's Eve. Despite the protests of many, her last wish is to have a visit from David Holm, the town drunkard. One of her friends sets off to try to uncover him. We cut to David, celebrating the end of the year with a couple of his pals in the most perfect of places, a graveyard. David regales them in a tale of his old friend George. We are informed George knew a bit more than common folk as he studied at university. He was a jolly fella, until New Year's Eve, that is. George had shared a spooky legend with David. For the last person to die each year at the stroke of midnight has to drive death's carriage and collect the souls of everyone who dies the following year. The horse and carriage are always the same, but the driver is not. Meanwhile, Gustafsson, a friend of Edith, is on the hunt for David. Upon finding him, he fails to convince David to come with him. I mean, who wants to visit a dying girl when you got a cold tasty beverage in the graveyard? 
Am I right? Well, after a bit too much of the bubbly, a fight breaks out, and poor David is struck on the head, just as the clock strikes 12. Uh-oh. We witness his soul emerge with the use of trick photography, which is definitely something I want to chat about for a moment. For this time period, there is some wonderful use of special effects, which apparently were developed by the cinematographer Julius Genazon. And I have to admit, I'm probably mispronouncing these names, and I do apologize. Ben always says I kind of develop or I guess speak my own language, which I guess we can just go on referring as Kixlingo. But anyway, they utilize some double exposures, which are made in the camera. This allowed the ghost characters to walk around in three dimensions. So therefore, when we see David's soul emerge, it looks like it's literally coming out of his corpse, creating this semi-transparent body that's emerging from his dead bodice. It's so cool. And this technique was used throughout the entire film and apparently was extremely difficult to achieve as the cameras were hand cranked, which meant they had to be cranked at exactly the same speed in different exposures to end up with the believable result. So cool. Okay, so just as David's soul leaves his body, the ghost carriage pulls up, and who is driving it but his old friend George. George had died last New Year's Eve, and now spent the year carrying out his master's requests as a reaper of souls, riding around in the horse-drawn, ghastly carriage, in which one night on Earth feels like 100 years. This is another example of where the double exposure worked so well, as the carriage is able to travel the streets, and George is able to walk through doors, through walls, and even on the ocean. When George arrives to reap David's soul, David is pleading with him to take him to the hospital. Oh, poor David. The carriage doesn't make that stop. Instead, George first takes him on a tour of his life, which is split into separate parts. He reminds David of his once happy life with his wife and two children and brother. Well, that was until George led him astray. George does blame himself for David's life issues. If they would not have met, David may have led a good life. So we walk through a series of flashbacks, David in jail for his drunkenness, in which we learn that his brother was also in jail for killing a man when they were both intoxicated. Upon returning home, David finds that his home is silent, it's empty, his wife and children have left, and he decides to track them down. It is during his search that he stumbles upon a Salvation Army. This was a place started by a religious group that would assist those without discrimination, specifically those in need. This is where David meets the angelic Edith. Despite David's uncouth, drunken behavior, she is happy to help him. She even mends his coat while he sleeps, and upon his departure, wishes him a year of luck, and that she hopes to see him again next New Year, 
to learn about his good fortune. David responds by ripping out the patches and stitching that she made into his coat. He is a real charmer, guys, remarking on the way out that he will return and show her, Jesus, don't give a fig about him. Oh, how fortunate for Edith to know she will see him again. This is where George informs David that he will see her again, only this time it will be on her deathbed, and he will now be responsible for reaping Edith's soul. What was so heartbreaking about this turn of events was that even on this woman's deathbed, Edith is still wanting to do good, remarking, I want to talk sense into him, him meaning David. When we are taken through flashbacks of Edith's life, we see a life dedicated to trying to help humanity. She sees beyond David's drunkenness, stinky exterior and rude demeanor, even stating, he is not merely as wicked as he pretends to be. Edith only sees the good in people. She does not understand how David can be filled with such hatred. It's so foreign to her. I love Edith but it is hard for me to comprehend how she can give so much to those that don't seem to recognize her existence. I suppose this is what it means to be completely selfless. Inevitably, David does end up finding his wife and children. George reminds him of this incident as well. David showing up drunk at his wife's and the score here in particular, which was added in the restoration by Swedish pianist Matty Bai, is very unsettling. David takes an axe to a locked door, which definitely seems to have influenced the likes of Stanley Kubrick when he made The Shining. When we are taken back to eat it, it is found that she is suffering from pneumonia. Most likely happened due to her work at the Salvation Army. All the while on her deathbed, though, she continues to plead that she must see David. She needs to ensure that David and his wife are reunited. They must end up together. George has now taken David to her bedside, and the look of shame in his eyes when he sees and hears what she has to say, truly extraordinary acting. The amount of emotion and the mood of the actors conveyed without any lines of dialogue is incredible. In the end, David is given another chance and learns of the importance and gift that is life. He commits to his wife that he wants to change, stating, please let my soul come to maturity before it is reaped. Guys, you don't want to mess with the reaper. I loved this movie. It sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole too, specifically regarding film makeup. It got me thinking about how important the makeup is within these films to help relay actors' expressions to the viewer. Makeup was also used as the film stock that was being utilized to create these silent pictures was not too flattering for the actors. During the 1910s and 20s, Many actors were responsible for applying their own makeup, and studios would distribute how-to guides to ensure that proper techniques were used. Actors would show up to the studios in full grease paint 
which must have been a really scary sight for eyes. Over time, more efficient methods were developed, and by the 1930s, there was a creation of even a slick lip coat, which was created by Max Factor, which came to be known as the first lip gloss, the X-rated. After you watch The Phantom Carriage, let me know what you think. You can drop me a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. Don't be a stranger. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or at Rosalie Kicks. I am deeming the month of November Noir-vember, so my next couple of episodes I will be digging up some noir flicks that I have been pining to watch. Hope you join me on this next expedition to the grave. Until next time, film pals, don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe and find our latest print scene in your mailbox. Also, a shout out to my Canadian film pal, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating the tunes you hear on this program. Thanks, Ashley. It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of David. I want to be good, but no one believes me. For when I crawl into my coffin, I want the living to know that I sincerely did try, despite what rumors they might hear. Goodbye, film pals. There once was a sad little goblin Who had a broken broom When he went anywhere it would wobble in the air And his heart would fill with gloom He tried so hard to fix it every night But he just couldn't get it working right The wobbling goblin with the broken broom Could never fly too high